Bibles, if you would please, and turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Ephesians, chapter 2, is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. And as we did last week, we're going to begin by reading from God's Word these ten verses uh, that we are looking at slowly in bite-sized chunks over these weeks. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, is where I'd like you to turn with me. And you can follow along as I read from uh, my copy of the Scriptures. Here then what Holy Scripture says. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you are saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. One of the reasons that Kathy and I decided when we first got married not to have a television is because we both spent a lot of time, too much time, when we were teenagers and younger watching TV. There were plenty of things to do at my house when I was growing up, but uh, uh, I spent a lot of hours in front of the screen Uh, conveniently, we had a television in the uh, family room and we had a television in the kitchen. So on Saturdays when I was home, if you were watching something in the family room and you needed to go out to the kitchen to feed yourself, breakfast, a snack, lunch, something, uh, you wouldn't have to miss a minute of whatever scintillating show you were watching on television. You could turn the television on in the kitchen. You could change the channel in the kitchen to what you wanted to watch unless my mother was there in the kitchen. Uh, on Saturdays, um, my mom would spend time in the kitchen doing projects, sewing, folding clothes, ironing, and while she was there, she listened to and watched to what seemed to my eight-year-old imagination the most boring show in the entire world. Uh, some of you have probably heard of it. It was called This Old House. I didn't know it at the time, but this, ho- this show hosted by Bob Vila, would, uh, I didn't know that it would become the grandfather of an entire industry of home improvement shows. What I did know 30 years ago was that Bob Vila and Norm Abrams were always working on a house, and it took them months and months and months to finish this project. Uh, but the idea for, for this old house uh, um, has been repeated, it's been expanded, it's been transformed, it's been made for people with ADD, like eight-year-old boys, and now you can see an entire house transformed in 30 minutes, right? There's uh, a, a network devoted to shows um, helping people fix their homes. There's uh, television shows, other, there's books, magazines, charity events, trade events. 
the, the whole world, it seems, is interested in this improvement industry. And it's not just uh, uh, devoted to houses either. Um, you, you can watch uh, shows about transforming cars, rebuilding them, or restoring furniture, toys, antiques. Even people get remade on television these days, don't they? Why, I wonder, are we drawn to this form of entertainment? I think it's because we human beings know innately that, that, that things are not the way they're supposed to be, that, that uh, things should be different than they are, and seeing transformation, even if it's a transformation of just a house, gives us a sense of satisfaction, it gives us a sense of hope that change really is possible. I need to be changed, and it's nice to see that at least something in the world can be changed and made beautiful. Uh, Every religion, every philosophy, every worldview has a theory about what is wrong with humanity, and Christianity is no different in that. Uh, We read a passage here a moment ago that describes to us, and we looked at it in greater detail last week, of what is wrong with us. We are dead in our transgressions and sins. We're alienated from the life of God because of our disobedience to Him. Uh, And the reason that we're Christians is because the Bible's description of humanity and its problems from this passage and others has for us greater explanatory power than any of the other descriptions of what's wrong. It's better in our understanding than the Islamic view of what's wrong with humanity. It's better than the socialist view of what's wrong with humanity. It's better than the uh, uh, pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps view of, uh, the, of world, the world. Christianity, we believe, has the greatest explanatory power. In the book of Ephesians, I want to show you, I want you to see in the text how God intervened, summarized by the fact that we're dead, in transgressions and sins. And today, as, as we work our way through the book of Ephesians, I want to show you, I want you to see in the text how God intervenes into our hopeless condition. And, and as Paul describes here what God has done, his expectation is that uh, you would be amazed, astounded, that you would be overwhelmed if you really understand the full extent of the problem and you really understand the greatness of God's solution, it should move you to gratitude and joy and and sober contemplation. So I want you to show from the text, I want to show you from the text this morning how God rescued us from death. Uh, Three ways, actually. One of which you know already, but you don't value enough. Another way that, that we don't really think that much about, but we should more. And a third way, which you'll only appreciate truly in the life that is to come. So we're going to talk today about something you know, but you don't value enough, something maybe you don't know, and and something that you really only know in the life that's to come. Uh, Let's begin here. Our condition is spiritual death. What has God done to intervene? And many of you I see already have your blue sheets out. If you want to take notes, they're in the bulletin, and you can follow along if you desire. I just closed my Bible. That's not good. Um, uh, Ephesians 2. Here's number one. How did God intervene? He loved us greatly. He loved us greatly. Verse 4 says, because of His great love for us. Maybe your text says, but God because of His great love with which He loved us. 
This text emphasizes God's great love. But let's be honest, this is not new, is it? This is not new news to us. Anybody in the world who believes anything about God thinks that God loves people. This is what God does. This is His job. Paul, you're not giving us anything that is new. Yet, there's more to this text here than you might first imagine. Let me explain. Um, I am very grateful for the people in our congregation who uh, play along with us when we sing. They play very well, and I'm always encouraged when they... Uh, to listen to them. In fact, I pick out the music some t- uh, most of the time, and I, I listen when they're playing for special features of the music that I notice. Um, I can play the piano. I can play like three songs on the piano. That's the truth. And, and if I were to play with us on Sunday morning, um, I, I could play the melody, and it, wouldn't, it, wouldn't, it would be helpful. It would be helpful. It'd keep us in tune. It'd keep us together. I, I could do that. Um, we, I lead singing in the class that I teach at Lancaster Bible College every now and then. And we don't have a piano in the room. And I usually change keys like three times in one verse while we're singing. So it would be helpful to have somebody doing that. But God has made music in such a way that there's uh, such a thing as harmony. And you can play more than one note at a time. And it fills out and gives a rich sound so that when you sing, there's fullness in what you're singing. And Ephesians 2, when it talks about God's great love, this reference to God's great love reminds us of it's the melody of this tune here. There's the melody of God's love. But there's harmony in this passage too. Harmonious things that add to and complement the melody. Things you should notice. Uh, let, let me point those two things out to you here. Paul writes about this love, and he writes about this love that comes in comparison to our condition. God's melody of love sounds much, much sweeter when you see it in light of the condition in which we are in. We, again, are spiritually dead. We're objects of wrath. Whose wrath? God's wrath. In every sense of the word, God is opposed to you. He is standing against you. He is in your way. He is blocking any sort of path that you might think is good, that's taking you to happiness and satisfaction. We are made in God's image, that's true. And every human being has value and dignity being made in God's image. But before God, in comparison to His righteousness, we are vile creatures, worthy of His unending, unchanging, uncompromising judgment. Now, maybe you're sitting here like, like I do when I read passages like this in the Bible. I, I understand what, it, what it's saying here about God's wrath, but... I don't really feel like I'm that bad. Why is God so mad at me? I would submit to you that my lack of understanding of God's wrath against me is itself an indication of how much I deserve God's wrath. Imagine it like this. One of the most horrific crimes that is ever uh, ever committed in, in, uh, in our country and around the world is the abuse of children. When you read that in, in the newspaper or you see a news story about some man who has sexually violated a child, it's, it's horrific. It's, 
it, it should make you angry. It's terrible. Let's imagine at one point in time you had the opportunity to sit down and speak with a man who had been convicted of the sexual assault of a child. And, and you looked at him and, and he said to you, well, there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, I don't really feel like a bad person for what I've done. You really shouldn't have those feelings of judgment against me because, you know, it's probably okay. And if he were to say that to you, you'd look at him and say, it's good that you're in prison because you are crazy. Because what you have done is horrible, and the fact that you don't even think it's horrible shows how bad of a condition you are. And this is how we stand before God, condemned, guilty, objects of wrath. And the fact that we don't feel it shows really how bad off we are. The Bible describes God's judgment in horrific terms. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus himself tells a story about a rich man who, uh, when he dies, it says, in hell he was in torment, the Bible says, agony. He cried out, oh, for just a drop of water to cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this torment. Now, the analogy with which I began, the home improvement one, fails here. See, there is in the human condition nothing to salvage. There's no beautiful woodwork underneath the old uh, carpet. There's no beautiful fireplace hidden behind the wall that you're going to discover. The human uh, condition, no reconstruction is possible, only demolition. But the stunning nature of this passage, the stunning news of this passage, is that though we are objects of God's wrath, we are also objects of God's love. At the same time, at the same time, God stands against us in His righteous wrath and He stands for us in His great love. I can't do that at the same time. I'm not capable of, at the same time, being diametrically opposed to something or someone and be filled with love for them at the same time. I just don't have it within me. Perhaps... Perhaps the closest analogy in my life to which some of you can relate is the task of of parenting. Sometimes my kids make me so mad. And my anger is uh, spoiled anger. It's self-centered anger. It's it's peevish. Uh, It's not always aimed at their good. And and if you could freeze frame one of those moments when I was angry and, and you said to me at that moment, you know, you're really angry at your kids. And I said, yes. They deserve my righteous wrath. And and you say, you know, you're angry. Do you love your kids? Of course, at that moment, the answer to the question is, yes, I do. Love is pretty deep. It's not at the forefront of my consciousness at this point in time. But at the same time, I am, in that moment, as close as I will ever come, I think, to what the Bible says here about God. Against in righteous wrath and for in great love. God is able to do that. And you should receive that this morning as good news or as a reminder of the good news that you already know. Maybe though, perhaps though, you're one of the people who are sitting in the room who perceive what Ephesians 2 says as an impossibility. Every follower of Christ, I think at some point in time, perceives this or senses this in their lives. Uh, Joel, if you really knew me, if you really knew what I have done, if you really know, knew the type of person that I am, you would not stand up in front and talk about God's love like you do. Listen to what Brian Chappell wrote. 
This beautiful truth of God's unconditional love is the heart of the gospel that becomes most dear to us when by God's grace we see our own weakness so clearly that we know that there is nothing in us that warrants God's love. Time and again I have heard words of consternation from those whose sin is so plain to them that they believe God should not love them. The high school student whose dating life has become promiscuous. The churchman whose marriage is falling apart due to his own hardness. The seminarian who, despite his aspirations and location, is still caught in a cyclic web of addiction and guilt. The young mother who doubts that she can treat her children better than her mother treated her. And over and over again in these desperate situations, I have heard these souls saying, because of what I have done, because I, of who I am, God should not love me. And he says, these words are true. On the basis of justice alone, a holy God should not love the sinful. Yet having dispensed His justice in the judgment of His Son, our God not only delights to extend us His mercy, but by His power He enables us to respond in love. Paul speaks of, his love, of God's love for us in the clear context of our woeful condition. And here again is another place in the Bible where it cuts across the grain of our culture or how we normally culturally respond to eruptive encounters with our failings. If you sit down with someone who has what has often commonly been described as low self-esteem and they talk to you about how unworthy they are, can't do anything right, I'm of no value to anybody. Nobody really appreciates me. The world would be a better place if I wasn't here. The conventional wisdom, if you sit down and talk to somebody who is, is repeating these things or saying those things, is, is to, to try to confront them with, with the, the opposite truth. Oh, no, that, that's not true. You're a great dad. And your kids love you. And you've got friends at church. And, and you're very compassionate toward people. You do matter. You do have value. That, that's the conventional answer, isn't it? To, to confronting people who are going through this uh, great feelings of, of worthlessness. The Bible's response to that, without diminishing the fact that we're made in God's image, is to agree with those convictions. In, the, in fact, the Bible says that you are worse off than you can imagine. If you're here this morning and you say, oh, Divinity, you wouldn't tell me about God's love if you really knew the real me. Well, God knows the real me, and the real you is worse than you can even imagine. And still, the Bible says, God loves you anyway. You see, the solution uh, is to, to not try to find hope or help or health within you. The solution is not self-esteem, but the solution is recognizing that you are loved by God beyond what you can ever imagine. You may be in this pit of your woeful condition, a great discouragement. But the one who, who knows that you should be in a lower pit has reached down to pull you out. God's great Love shines, it sings in, condition, in comparison to our woeful condition. Uh, there's another note of this the song of God's love, though, that's written here in, in this passage. God's love uh, comes to us also with indescribable force. It comes with indescribable force. 
Um, if you ever uh, hear on the, the news a, a story of, of how the English language is changing, one of the things that you'll note is that English is always growing. There are always new words being added to the English language. At the same time, as new words are constantly being added, though, scholars are noting that Americans are using less and less of them. Uh, here's an example that you can think of. Do you, do you spend any time with somebody who swears a lot? They have four four-letter words. All of them are foul that they use for every situation. These four-letter words are verbs, adjectives, nouns, insults, exclamations of surprise, exclamations of delight, exclamations of disappointment. The same word covers all of these situations. R.C. Sproul says uh, that this is a result of an impoverished vocabulary. Impoverished vocabulary is not Paul's problem, but Paul's problem here in this passage is that he is running out of words. He cannot describe God's love. It is so magnificent. Uh, Look at at, at how he does this. Remember uh, when we were talking about God's power a few weeks ago, Paul ran out of words there. He was talking about God's power, his strength, his might, his energy. Now he he runs out of words to describe God's love. Verse 4 describes that he has great love with which he loved us. He's rich in mercy. Verse 5, grace is mentioned there. Verse uh, uh, 7 Uh, the incomparable riches of His grace expressed to us in kindness. Paul is just piling the words on top of you. He he can't come up with more words to describe how amazing and stupendous God's love is. God's love outstretches and outruns human vocabulary. It outruns our songs. That's why we're always writing and learning new songs because there's always new ways to describe God's greatness. There's this continual stream of God's mercy and it comes and comes. and You can't exhaust it. You can't outthink it. Uh, There are always new vistas of God's love for us to explore and uncover and this is the love that has broken into our condition. God has loved us greatly. You know that. You know it. Now you can know it more and more and more. There's something else that God has done in response to our condition. He has loved us greatly. This is so something, secondly, that we're not overly familiar with. Uh, second, the, this passage tells us that God has uh, uh, united us with Christ inseparably. He has united us with Christ inseparably. Uh, in verse 5 and 6, we come to the main verbs in these ten verses. And there are three verbs here. They're the main things that tells us what God has done. And they all, in Greek, begin with the preposition with. And the with is here in these verses. Verse 5, God has made us alive with Christ. Verse 6, God has raised us up with Christ. And verse 6, also, He has seated us with Christ. These Three things describing what God has done. This is a truth that we don't consider nearly enough our union with Christ. We have been united with Him. Uh, There are some Bible scholars who say that our union with Christ is the organizing principle of our faith. This is a profound mystery that God has, by faith, united us with Christ. I think you could unfold that truth through all of the Bible. And it's a mystery that, that... Uh, uh, calls for deep pondering. 
Regularly in the news, we hear about uh, stories uh, about the great work that surgeons do in separating conjoined twins. Uh, Conjoined twins is a more medically correct term. It's a kind, gentle term. But for a long time, conjoined twins used to be called Siamese twins. You're familiar with that phrase, I'm sure. Uh, They're called Siamese twins, or they were called in homage to two men from the country of Siam who were named Chang and Ang Bunker. No relation to Archie. Um, Chang and Ang were born in 1811. They were connected at the sternum by some cartilage. Uh, And and when they were born, they, they were facing one another. Over time, they actually learned to stretch this cartilage so that they could stand next to each other. They were connected by this cartilage, and uh, the only organs that they shared, they actually didn't share, they had their livers, were uh, uh, fused together, but they each had separate functioning livers, and they were joined this way. In uh, 1828, they came to the United States, and they traveled all over the United States with P.T. Barnum in his circus. And in 1839, Chang and Ang retired, and they settled in South Carolina, where they started dating sisters who were not joined. Uh, two women by the name of Adelaide and Sarah Ann Yates. I wonder how, I wonder how, in any sort of way, you could, you could court these women individually. This is the third wheel, right? A significant third wheel on your dates. And could you ever really have a private moment with your girlfriend if your brother is right there? Well, uh, Believe it or not, they married these sisters in a double ceremony. Uh, They built farmhouses next to each other. And one night they'd stay in one house and the next night they'd stay in the other house. Between the two of them, they had 22 children with their wives. Uh, This is strange. In 1874, Chang, who was a heavy drinker, which is a problem, I suppose, if the person you're attached to is an alcoholic, Chang got pneumonia and died. And Ang woke up in the morning and he found his brother there dead. Um, the, the story is uncertain. Either, either Ang died before the doctors could come and try to save his life, or he refused to be separated from his brother. Regardless, three hours later, he died too. This is strange. It's a strange story, isn't it? And I'm sure it, it's, it's working in your mind, all kinds of puzzling things. How does this work? How did they do this? How did they live? This is odd. It defies all of your expectations, all of the things that we associate with normal life. They did everything together. They were united by the flesh. Ephesians 2 tells us that God has united us spiritually by faith to Christ. And everything that Christ has done has been applied to me. Jesus Christ died for sin and through Him my debt for sin has been paid too. My sin was credited to Him and He died. His death and His obedience are credited to me and His resurrection is mine and His exaltation is mine. I am united to Christ. This union with Christ's language is very important to the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. Uh, Keep your finger in Ephesians 2 and turn with me over to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Uh, We have this description of our union with Christ. It's uh, very important here as Paul is writing. Look at what he says, Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? 
Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Verse 2, by no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Well, you ask the question, when did I die to sin? Verse 3, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Paul's speaking here of their baptism, their water baptism that these Roman Christians underwent soon after they became followers of Christ. Now, some people might say, well, is Paul saying here that you get saved by being baptized? And that is not true. In fact, he has just argued more strongly than anywhere else in the Bible in the first chapter of Romans that we're justified, we're rightly related to God by faith. But in the early church, uh, when you became a follower, when you trusted in Christ, that trust, your faith in Christ, was made public by baptism. And you were not considered a believer by the church until you had been baptized. That was the public way to testify to your faith. So Paul here is using the term baptism as a, a, a shorthand for the entire process of becoming a follower of Christ. Uh, and and it, that baptism is, a, is a, uh, a testimony to our union with Christ. You can see that in the text. Look at verse 4. We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with Him like this in His death, we will certainly also be united with Him in His resurrection. This is why in our church we practice baptism the way that we do. The imagery is very strong here. We go down into the water like Christ went down into the grave and He came up out of the water like we come up out of the water being resurrected with Him. A couple of weeks ago, I was out having lunch with a member of our church and a friend of his came in and uh, introduced me to his friend. And, he, and he, the member of our church said, this is Joel Devaney, he's, he's my pastor. And the man said, oh, it's nice to meet you. Uh, where do you pastor the church? Uh, what church do you pastor? I said, well, I'm a pastor of Grace Baptist Church of Millersville. And he said, oh, well, I hope you don't mind shaking hands with a Methodist. I said, I'd be happy to shake hands with Methodists. It's good to meet you. He said, you know, uh, there's just a little bit of water between the two of us. <laughs> and I said, without thinking, I said, that's what Moses said to Pharaoh. <laughs> uh, he laughed. He thought it was funny. We all laughed. Upon further reflection, I have decided that that was perhaps not the most gracious thing I could have said. I suppose it depends on who's Moses and who's Pharaoh in this situation. Remember, Pharaoh was immersed. So, <sighs> my dear Methodist and Presbyterian and Lutheran and Mennonite friends who share the same gospel and worship the same Lord, it, it's good to be partners with them. But when I read passages like Romans 6 and think about its implications, I am a very happy Baptist. This point of this passage in Paul's union language in Ephesians 2 is that we're with Christ. We're united to Christ. We're sealed with Christ. His death is my death. His resurrection is my resurrection. His exaltation is my exaltation. 
which is grand and glorious news. And what it means is, I need have no fear of spiritual forces. Again, remember that in the, the church in Ephesus, they were surrounded by men and women who claimed that they could reach the gods, that they had control over the powers, that they could speak to spirits, that they had sorcery, sorcery and mystical powers at their disposal. And, and if you are seated with Christ in the heavenlies, you need have no fear. No fear. Uh, this God has put us together and this is the root of my foundation and my life. I'm with Christ. And if you are united to Christ too, the root and foundation of, this is the root and foundation of your life too. It's something that we have in common. And the life we lead as followers of Christ together flows from this common union. We're going to get to chapters 4 and 5 and 6, and Paul's going to draw on this common union as the basis for how we treat one another. We are in Christ, and because we're in Christ together, your concerns are my concerns. We're doing life together because we're united to the same head, Jesus Christ. This afternoon at our congregational meeting, we're going to vote to welcome new members to our congregation. And we're going to formalize and solemnize this truth. Our union with Him and our union with one another. There's one more element of this text that deserves our attention. It's in verse 7 that we're going to look at today. God's response to our condition that will only find its truest significance in the life that is to come. Here it is. God will display His grace eternally. He will display His grace eternally. Look at verse 7. It's an astounding verse in the Bible. In order, Paul writes, that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. There are depths of God's kindness that we will not be able to appreciate here. There is a day coming when God will unveil His grace to us. We'll look forward, we'll look backward. God will will review our lives with us and He'll say, I was at work in kindness in all of these situations. And forever, for eternity, God is going to be unveiling His kindness, His love, His mercy. In fact... That word, those words in order that tell us that God has united us with Christ so that He can spend eternity unveiling His grace to us. What are we going to be doing in heaven? We're going to be learning more and more about the depths of the kindness and love of God. This is a summary here in Ephesians of how God has responded to our plight of spiritual death. It's meant to amaze you and stun you and astound you. And I wonder if it does that. Have you ever been to a wedding reception at the Palm Court at Willow Valley? I've been to a couple there. Um, If you've ever been, you know, um, the the reception desk is there on the main floor. And you go down to a big stairway and and there's the the, the hall or the... the, um, I'm Baptist, all I can think of is fellowship hall. There's the room, the, the, the banqueting room down there. And, and, and uh, up, up here, there, there's a balcony. And guests in the hotel have just registered to go up to their hotel rooms can, can look down at, at the banquet going on there. If, if you're there at a wedding reception, one of the fun things to do is watch the people up on, on the balcony because they stop and they look. Uh, parents, in particular little girls, want to find the bride who looks like a princess in her beautiful dress. They stare down and see what's going on. 
Um, they don't really enter into the joy of that day. They're down there and they're looking. Uh, they see what's happening, but you know they're just on their way to their room. They might stop for a minute to appreciate it and listen to the band or, or whatever, but, but they're not really entering into the joy. Now, imagine if, if you could stand up there in the balcony, though, with them, and, and you knew this couple, and, and you, you could go over to the, the, these onlookers. You say, you see, see that girl down there, that bride? She's beautiful. Well, her groom... Her groom just just got back from his second tour in Iraq, and and they're getting married today. If you were standing there watching, and, and you heard that, and you got more information now, your joy is going to increase at the at their day. This oh, he came home. That's that's wonderful. Or imagine if somebody came, could come over and say, that guy down there who got married, you're not going to believe his story. When, when, when she first met him, it was love at first sight. Man, he fell for her, and she did not like him. Man, she, she didn't like him at all. And he chased her. He followed her to college. He, he, he went to the same school. She, he, he, he followed her back to her hometown. He got an apartment in that, and he was, he's trying to woo her. She went on a short-term missions trip. He went on the same trip, following her around the world. And, and one day, it finally dawned on her, he really does love me. And it dawned on her that how much she had grown to appreciate him. And here they are, they met five years ago, and they just got married today. If you hear that story... Man, your, your joy increases in the celebration, right? Even, even if you're just an onlooker, you're, you're, you're more pleased. Well, you can have a certain level of joy up in the balcony, but really the greatest joy, isn't it, for the, is for the people down on the floor who, who are celebrating, the family members, the friends. And the greatest joy of that day is for the bride and the groom. They're there in a significant way, more than anybody else, to celebrate this, uh, the, the joy of their union. The Bible calls every single one of us, every single one in the world, to come close and to join in the intimate detail of the lavish love and the great grace of God. And when you enter into his love by faith, the closer you come, your joy increases. That's why Paul prays that they would know God more and more and more because the closer you come, the more joy there is to be found, the more grace, the more mercy, the more delight. Maybe, maybe if, if reading Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 doesn't strike you and astound you, maybe it's because you're not really at the party. Maybe you're watching. Maybe you don't really know what's going on there down on the floor. And the magnificence of what Paul is unfolding here for his readers is this God who is worth knowing. Come close, Paul says. Come near. Come near to Christ and to God's indescribable love. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are grateful to you for your great kindness to us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. He is the one who for our sins offered himself on the cross and he died and rose again and our allegiance is to him and our delight is in him. Father, you know very well our tendency and the ease with which we become numb 
to the, the Paul's rich vocabulary. Every Sunday, in some way, we sing and celebrate that Christ has died for us. And it, it's easy for us to have callous, a callous reaction to it. Father, would you, according to your grace, according to your great mercy, uh, your rich mercy, would you open our eyes afresh and anew to see not just the, the, the woefulness of our condition before you, but the wonder of your response, your great grace, your marvelous riches of mercy, your kindness to us in Christ Jesus. I'd like you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed this morning. And uh, perhaps you're here this morning and, and you have never, um, uh, never really been, been stunned or uh, amazed by God's great grace. M- maybe you're like one of those people standing on the sidelines just watching. Our hope and our, our prayer for you is, as a congregation is that you would, would turn to Jesus Christ and that you would trust in him for your salvation, for your forgiveness, that you might become not an object of God's wrath, but an object of his forgiveness and his kindness. Today would be a great day for you to do that. It would be a great day for you to, to uh, come before God and, and confess to him your failings before him and to ask him through to, through Jesus Christ, forgive you, give you life. In fact, our, our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, and I, I would just say to you this morning that, that um, I would be delighted this morning to speak to you about that. Um, uh, I'll be at the front of the auditorium at the end of the service. I, I'd love to talk to you this morning about what it means to trust in Christ uh, as your Savior. It's, it's the, the best decision you will ever make in response to the a love that comes in amazing, amazing ways. Father, we, we thank you for your great mercy to us again, that Jesus Christ took our sin and our sorrow and he made them his very own. We praise you for your great kindness in Jesus. And we pray these things in our Savior's name. Amen.